Welcome to another medium-length scripted podcast episode about pushing corporate governance toward a hopefully better future. My name is Matt Fulbrook, and you may remember that I assumed I would never do this again. Well, it turns out that my last episode is the best performing podcast episode I've ever done, which surprises me a great deal considering it's one of like 250 episodes. So... I assume that's a signal that you liked it, and I'm here to give it another shot. Let's dive in. I want to convince you of something, and I guess if you don't end up convinced, I at least want you to come out of this thinking to yourself, yeah, okay, I get it. I don't like it, but at least it makes sense. Because if I'm being honest, most of the corporate governance stuff out there, whether it's dry academic stuff or fluffy pop management BS or something else entirely, just kind of feels off to me. Like it's built on a foundation that looks solid, but it was actually made by someone who had no idea what they were doing. Or to be more fair, maybe it's more like the foundation was built by someone who was building the very first house ever, and it was such a mind-blowingly awesome idea that we forgot to wonder if we should be trying to build the second and third and 1,000th houses on even stronger foundations. And eventually, we all just sort of assumed it was okay and normal for basements to leak and houses to fall over all the time. I mean, Remember when we didn't have houses at all? Anyway, you know exactly what I mean because I totally nailed that metaphor. When it comes to corporate governance, there's so much stuff that we just accept because it seems to make sense. We don't bother to inspect the underlying message or assumptions. Here's an example that's kind of obscured by the fact that it's so obvious, if that makes sense. If I asked you to tell me something that a good corporate director does one of the first things you'd probably say is ask good questions. And there's a million reasons this feels right. Boards need to understand complicated stuff. They need to seek validation from incomplete information. They need to make decisions under uncertain conditions. So many questions to ask. So asking good questions instead of bad questions is important. I even talked to a good friend of mine the other day whose client, a board, asked them to facilitate a session teaching them how to ask good questions. It seemed important enough to pay someone to teach them. I don't know what comes up for you when you Google questions boards should ask, but for me, the top result is from the Corporate Governance Institute, an article called Six Questions Board Members Should Ask About Strategy. Each of the questions is important. Read through them and you'll think to yourself, I 100% agree that board members should want to know the answers to all these questions. But then again, think of the discussion that might arise from a board member asking the number one question in the article. Like, really put yourself in the moment. You're at a board meeting. Agenda's packed with a bunch of stuff, probably important stuff. Everyone's carved time out of their nutty schedules to be there and are ready to dive in and do important work. Maybe the CEO is about to make a presentation. Maybe they just did. Maybe they said, does anyone have any questions? And one of the directors chimes in with this beauty. What is the company's vision and mission statement and does the strategy support it? My question to you is this. 
Can you imagine a realistic universe where uttering this question out loud during a board meeting causes something useful to happen? Honestly, the best scenario is someone in the room just literally answers the question. Our mission statement is making fingers orange one Cheeto at a time. Our vision is a world where every person eats exactly 14 Cheetos per day. And yes, our strategy supports it. Moving on. Blah, blah, blah. What am I even getting at? Here it is. Good questions aren't the actual thing we care about from directors, despite the hundreds, maybe thousands of articles and videos and books and webinars about questions directors should ask. And despite basically every governance expert conditioning directors to be question asking machines, let me put it this way. It's possible to imagine a scenario where a director asks the perfect question at the perfect time and it results in nothing. No conversation, no insight, no engagement. But at least they did their job, right? They asked the question, mission accomplished. Nuh-uh. So, what is the actual thing we care about from directors? Or, to put it another way, why do we think we want directors to ask good questions in the first place? Maybe it's to generate engaging dialogue. Maybe it's to expose potential risks or errors that we'd otherwise miss. Maybe it's to make sure we all understand something a bit better. Maybe it's to show they're paying attention. Let me ask you this. Sorry, every time I hear or say the phrase, let me ask you this, it makes me think of the Beavis and Butthead episode, Butt Scratcher 2000. If you know, you know. So let me ask you this. Is giving directors lists of questions to ask and training them to be inquisitive really the best way to, for example, generate engaging dialogue that's actually useful, that actually does something good for the company? Part of the problem is that we mostly wield boards as oversight robots, as compliance robots. What better way to make us feel like we're doing oversight than to ask lots of questions, especially clever questions that show we're smart and paying attention. That way, our butts are covered if anything goes wrong. To me, this whole thing is starting to feel like it's built on a wonky foundation. Like, it feels like boards as question-asking oversight and compliance robots is, you know, kind of whack. Sure, let's make sure all the compliance stuff is done and done well. And if for some reason we're finding that super difficult or time consuming, then we have something way more urgent than a question asking problem. Something more along the lines of a bad manager's problem or a technology problem or a we really need a good lawyer problem. Once the compliance is out of the way, that's when good governance can start. Maybe we just have to start with an acknowledgement that asking isn't the result we're aiming for. It's just one possible way to achieve the result. Because when good governance starts, what we really want is ideas, critical thinking, divergent perspectives colliding to inspire and motivate management so that they're doing the coolest shit possible. There are lots of tools in our toolkit that increase the probability that we'll get there and get there faster than just hoping that our boards will ask a brilliant question at the right moment and that everyone will react to that question in the right way. 
If you don't know my perspectives on this already, just poke through season four of One Minute Governance, which is all about the conditions that affect our decision making. Anyway, this is just one of lots of examples of conventional thinking that, to me, seems like it's rooted in a misunderstanding or maybe even cynicism, like the board's job is to try to poke holes in management's thinking instead of building on it. We've mushed together compliance and governance, which aren't the same, and we've boiled the sexy puzzle of effective conversation and idea generation down to the single and boring puzzle piece of question asking, when asking the question isn't the actual thing that matters. The questions are just one potential way of getting the result we really want, which is good governance. Hey, by the way, if you're old enough to be a music lover who grew up listening to full albums, I encourage you to go look at the top 50 albums on Rolling Stone's list of the top 500 greatest albums of all time published in 2020. Go and look it up right now if you want. As you're scrolling through it, try to see past what I'm sure will be a roller coaster of rage and sweet validation. For me, I love and maybe even adore about half of these albums. And most of the rest of them I really admire. And some of them, I don't know, I guess I'm ambivalent or not so familiar. I guess I feel more confusion than rage. Like, how could Kid A at number 20 be above OK Computer at number 42? Also, two Bob Dylan and two Beatles albums in the top 20? Seems like overkill. And lots of albums that seem to be here because they changed things or transformed things more than because they're perfect albums. Like Jay-Z's The Blueprint at number 50 has some perfect, perfect songs. Songs that changed things. Best song on The Blueprint? Hola, Ovito. Controversial choice? I think not. Speaking of change... I also feel like part of the awesome power of Aretha's I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You at number 13 is how she changed, transformed, already legendary songs by Otis Redding and Sam Cooke into something so much greater than what anyone imagined they were, as though those songs really always belonged to her in the first place. But if the list is about albums that changed things, how's Thriller at number 12 above Off the Wall at number 36? Or maybe the list is about audacious artistic expression. But then, come on, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy at number 17 above To Pimp a Butterfly at number 19? Excuse me? For what it's worth, the best moment on fantasy, other than the obvious, which is Nicki Minaj's verse on Monster, is the insanely long auto-tune moaning solo at the end of Runaway. Seriously, I love it so much. But almost every song on To Pimp a Butterfly has a combination of creativity, musicality, message, storytelling, and production that outshines fantasy in every way. Or if we're talking about the best sounding albums, then D'Angelo's Voodoo at number 28 should probably be at the top, right? Or if the ranking is based on music that became the soundtrack of an era, then The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill at number 10 should probably be number one for maybe being the most vibe and nostalgia setting work of art in my teenage years. Speaking of being a teenager in the 90s, is there anyone born between 1977 and 1987 who doesn't think of their dad when they think of Paul Simon's Graceland at number 46? Should Equemini by Outkast at number 49 be number one just for the chorus of Rosa Parks? Or should Purple Rain at number eight 
be number one because it's probably the only album in the top 50 where literally everybody, no matter how old or young, would recognize a song or two or three. Anyway, none of these albums is flawless in the literal sense, right? Case in point, I don't think anyone will hate me for saying that depending on the day, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On at number one either feels to me like the best musical artifact possible or a bit of a schmaltzy drag. And that concludes my podcast about boardroom question asking and reacting to Rolling Stone's top 50 albums of all time. See you next time. Sorry, that was dumb. What am I getting at? I think there are two really useful messages here. The first, even perfect things are imperfect. I'm pretty sure I barely need to explain myself, but even your favorite album on that list has at least one moment that you either tend to skip or you've learned to tolerate simply because you're so familiar and accustomed to it. But deep down, you know, it just doesn't work for you. Like who in the world thinks Maxwell's silver hammer is perfect? Anyway, no corporate governance system or model is perfect. No single corporation's governance approach is perfect. No board is perfect. No CEO, no individual director, even the very best ones. The ones who seem perfect or brilliant are flawed and maybe seem more perfect because of their flaws. For example, Lots of directors who really are great question askers are great because there's lots of stuff they don't know or understand and they're shameless about admitting it and asking questions to fill the gaps. Those people are so much more valuable than the people who know lots of stuff and ask questions to try to trip everyone else up or show off how smart they are, right? But the second thing is way more important than the first and in a way is the exact flip side. Okay, if I take a look at the Rolling Stone list, I admit there are a small number of albums that I would just ditch outright. For example, I never even vaguely understood the appeal of The Velvet Underground and Nico at number 23 or Patti Smith's Horses at number 26. Yes, yes, I'm sure those are your favorite albums and that's fine. But to me, I just don't get it. But even with those cut out, and also maybe rumors by Fleetwood Mac, sorry, every single remaining album has a moment maybe more than one moment, that even taken on its own can transform my entire day. I've never really understood why Nas's Illmatic at number 44 is seen as such a masterpiece as an album, but I will listen to New York State of Mind any minute of any day and it will change me a little bit every time. Like in the first verse where Nas has just told a bit of a harrowing story at the end of which he asks himself, so what you saying? As in, great story Nas, but what's the point? To which he responds with the greatest musical moment of the song and the album, Bad Rapping Alert. It's like the game ain't the same Got younger, pulling the trigger Bringing fame to the name And claim some corners Crews without guns or goners In broad daylight, stick up kids They run up on us It's perfect The story already gave a sense of danger Fear, adventure, and despair But then this fragment For the cadence and brilliant rhythmic emphasis The rad way that he rhymes Corners, goners, on us The musicality, the vibe these few lines make the brilliance of what happened before even more brilliant. You get what I'm saying, right? The fragment makes the whole better. The song makes the album better, etc. There is no perfect board meeting. 
or perfect conversation during a board meeting. And certainly no such thing as a perfect decision, but sometimes a person says or does a thing that unlocks some heretofore unknown potential. This is where the question asking thing can really matter where we've been talking about a thing or rather talking around a thing, a thing that's obviously important, and maybe it feels just fine. We've received and processed some information and the information makes sense. It helps us to see the connection between the thing and the purpose or objectives of the corporation. We're good. It's good. We're doing our jobs. Yay for us. But then we get an unexpected intervention from one of our directors. This director in this moment is our version of Nas and not just our version of any old Nas, but the 19 year old Illmatic era Nas, New York state of mind Nas, seven and a half years before that other perfect song from the blueprint, if you know what I'm saying. And our Nas spits a couple of brilliant lines at the right time in the right way with the right intention and everything that's happening at the meeting everything that has happened, everything that will happen at the meeting is suddenly so much smarter, clearer, meaningful, and sharp. It made all of us better, maybe a little, maybe a lot, maybe for a minute, maybe for the rest of the meeting, maybe forever. And what felt fine and good before, what felt like doing our jobs, and now feels like something much greater. If you listen to my last long form episode, I'm really just building on the same message. The idea that good governance belongs in the realm of the individual. The difference here is that I'm trying to convince you that those individual acts or inspirations make us capable of creating songs in the key of life at number four, whereas without them, our best work is less great. Say Stevie's 1987 album, Characters. Good governance makes us capable of I wish instead of just skeletons. If you're not following me, YouTube is your friend. And while you're at it, check out Corey Henry's breathtaking performance of Love's In Need of Love today on the Harpeggi, because if you think I'm just referring to random nonsense, that is a four minute and nine second experience that will change your entire day the way only a thrilling, inspiring individual act can. If you're struggling to imagine how you might show up and Corey Henry the heck out of your next board meeting, that's fair. Just knowing that it matters, that it's possible, and what the point is, it's an important start. In my opinion, governance education, advice, and tools should be focusing on this. So that's what I'll be working on for the next little while. Thanks for listening and following along. My name is Matt Fulbrook, and I'm so grateful to you for indulging me. A bit of a PS here. Did anyone notice that there's precisely one instrumental album in the top 50? Kind of blue at number 31. I guess since we're mostly dealing with rock and pop music, the lack of instrumental music kind of tracks. But there's also precisely zero dance or electronic albums. I mean, let's be real here. Nobody is more obsessive about putting together albums than electronic artists. I didn't look too hard, but is Daft Punk's Discovery amazing album at number 236 the top ranking pure electronic album does robin's body talk count at number 196 also an amazing album anyway seems a bit weird but that's just me
Also, I was originally going to say that I'd personally scratch Remain in Light by Talking Heads at number 39 off the list, but I figured with the whole Velvet Underground and Patti Smith thing, people would assume I have something against New York hipsters, which I totally don't. Do I? <laughs> 